I'm Alan, and my pronouns are they, them. I'm Kaylee, and my pronouns are she, her. And my name is Danielle. My pronouns are she, her, and you are listening to Target Snark It, a weekly podcast from Broad Digital Consulting. Hello and welcome back to Target Snarket, a weekly podcast from Broad Digital Consulting, where we are talking about issues in the news, on social media, on our collective mind about business and marketing, how we do it, where it fails, and how we can do it better. I am one of your hosts, Danielle Bilbrook, Principal Consultant at Broad Digital Consulting. I am your other host and other Danielle, and on today's episode, the most difficult name to spell, Kaylee Myers. <laughs> So this week's topic is timely on our end. We're actually recording this on 420, but since 420 doesn't fall on a Tuesday and we're beholden to the algorithm, it's not 420 when you're listening to this. However, uh, we would hate to let that stop you from doing a weed since that's what we are here to discuss today. (laughs) Today, we're going to be jumping into the state of recreational marijuana businesses nationwide here in the U.S. Ultimately, as more and more states adopt legalization of marijuana for recreational use, there should be a lot of business opportunities to meet demand. Uh, What we're seeing, however, are barriers to scaling, exorbitant costs simply to do business, and an unfortunate whitewashing of the business of selling weed as though many people had not been labeled as felons for doing exactly that years ago. Uh, What is the current state of the industry? Where do we see it going next? And how can we move forward toward a better and more ethical future for marijuana? We have a very special guest joining us today. We're very excited that he was game to share his expertise on our pod. Uh, Ricardo Baca is a 20-year veteran journalist and cannabis futurist, widely respected in both modern media and drug policy circles. He founded the news vertical, The Cannabis, for the Denver Post, where he extensively covered the advent of the U.S. adult use cannabis market and related issues worldwide, as seen in the feature documentary, Rolling Papers. In 2016, Ricardo founded Grasslands, a journalism-minded agency to work directly with business leaders in highly regulated industries, from cannabis and psychedelics to spirits and healthcare. He was also named one of Fortune's seven most powerful people in America's marijuana industry in 2016 and Marketer of the Year by Ad Can in 2019. You have likely seen his work in a number of places like Rolling Stone, The Colbert Report, NPR's All Things Considered, On Stage at TEDx or South by Southwest. So like, you know, small publications, small stage. <laughs> Welcome to Target Snark at Ricardo. Thank you, Danielle, Kaylee. So good to be here with you. (laughs) We're very excited. Uh, So as I'm sure will become evident over the course of this episode, I am the person here who knows the least about our subject matter, but I am like riveted baby sponge over here. So I apologize to you both in advance if I fuck up terminology somewhere. Uh, Please feel free to correct me. But we actually just sent out our newsletter today, our our weekly newsletter, to do our weekly plug on that, (laughs) where uh, Kaylee had written a segment on how, uh, despite being legal, there are so many damn restrictions on the industry in general. And as a result, it can be really hard to do the business of marijuana in a way that really is scalable. Kaylee, I know you can maybe speak to a little bit about what it is that you wrote. And Ricardo, we'd love to have 
you weigh in on that since you've obviously been following this since the frontier of recreational legalization really took hold. Yeah, so uh, Rolling Stone magazine came out with an article this week that talked about just kind of the efficiency challenge that a lot of marijuana companies, whether you're a manufacturer, a dispensary, a grow house, there's not a lot of efficiency and it's extremely hard to scale and grow, especially as a mom and pop shop. There's a documentary on Hulu that's about the Green Triangle out in California, and it talks a lot about kind of those original people in the state of California who were illegally growing in Humboldt County, and now they're trying to go legit. And it just proved to show that in terms of costs of being legal, and then you have so many people who are growing that you have such a large supply just in the state anyway, that the price points aren't really worth it in terms of keeping storefronts open. So Ricardo, you're in Colorado, we should also say. So all of these states are going to have different laws. But what have you been noticing in terms of dispensaries in Colorado? Are you still seeing them kind of on the rise, new shops every day? Or are you seeing some doors closing? What are you seeing there? Yeah, you know, the the fascinating, one of the many fascinating elements of the current cannabis market ultimately means that every legal state is at a different place in their evolution and maturity. Mm -hmm. Um, Colorado, Washington, these were the first two states to ever legalize adult use cannabis back in 2012. And so these are technically the most mature markets we have, whereas California is, of course, the most uh, recognizable and the, the largest market that we have. And they were also the first to legalize a medical system more than 20 years ago. So uh, you really do uh, have to uh, nail down state by state where you're talking about to to answer that kind of a question. And in some of these heritage markets, since we are talking about California, Colorado, we are seeing a pretty substantial downturn in the industry right now. So we're seeing market compression. Gone are the days of new dispensaries every day, popping (laughs) up all over the city. The regulated market in Colorado is more than 10 years old. And really, the the current market compression and downturn that we're seeing in sales in some of the more mature markets has more to do with the backside of the pandemic bump than anything else. Because when you Mm -hmm. think about it, a couple of years ago, we're not leaving our houses. There's a lockdown in place. And a lot of people did turn to cannabis to entertain themselves, to uh, try to pass the time. And, uh, you know, this this demographic that is uh, the canicurious, the number one demographic in the entire industry, a lot of them gave it a try. And some of them are still consuming, some are not. And so, of course, now that the doors are back open, we're going to concerts and everything else, uh, you know, we are seeing a downturn in the market, in the mature markets. But at the same time, this industry is not going anywhere. We just need need to find out how to properly right size it. And to your point about scalability, it's almost impossible to do that in an era where this uh, cannabis remains federally illegal and Mm -hmm. uh, businesses can't operate across state lines. So that's kind of a big challenge that literally no other industry in the world is dealing with right now. Sure. Just breaking down barriers. And I remember, Danielle, this would have been right around when we left Colorado, but I have I have family who is in the industry and I have dated in the industry. Um, But (laughs) around that point in time, we had a huge one of the biggest like 
they had multiple shops, but they were taken down by the DEA because the DEA is the people who are regulating the state laws as well. So they were having undercover cops come in and make sure that people were, you know, only buying an ounce from individual uh, dispensaries and things like that to make sure that the dispensaries themselves were being legal. And then they would end up raiding them and entire storefronts completely closed because people who were working at the dispensary were arrested for working there. (laughs) Oh, wow. Right. You know, and and actually, just to make a small clarification, the DEA doesn't oversee any cannabis right now. Oh, okay. Uh, You know, ultimately, with this federal illegality, what you have is this game of hot potato where state and city municipalities are looking to the federal government and saying, hey, you regulate all pesticide use on plants and agriculture, EPA. So why don't you regulate this? And EPA Mm -hmm. is saying, hell no. Same thing with IRS, same thing with USDA, FDA, and DEA. They literally have nothing to do with the state market, primarily because it is considered federally illegal. Now, occasionally you will see DEA come into the mix, and that is when laws are being broken, uh, usually campaigns uh, that are being led by local law enforcement officials. But I think I know what you're talking about. Um, There have been lots of things happening over the years, a lot fewer these days, as things mm-hmm. have settled down in the industry, as sure. the industry has recognized that occasionally there is oversight and they don't want to break those rules or else they risk losing their license. But I think what you might be referencing, Kaylee, was something that's known as smurfing. Uh, okay. Kind of a funny name, uh, but ultimately <laughs> uh, consumers in every legal cannabis market can only purchase and possess a certain amount of cannabis at a time. And so what they would do is they'd go and buy that ounce of cannabis flower. Then they'd walk outside and walk back in or go to another store and buy another ounce of cannabis flower. At that point, they've bought too much for one day purchase. They have too much that they're supposed to legally uh, possess. And when you're smurfing, you are generally smuggling that weed out of state and selling it elsewhere, which is why it's illegal. Mm. Um, and that was a problem with a number of local dispensaries here and elsewhere. And we're seeing that become less of a popular thing, less of a problem as we see more states come online. I mean, uh, I know my team and I at Grasslands just hope helped to open the first dispensary in New York State in December. And a few months before that, we helped open the first dispensary in Vermont with our clients there. So legalization is spreading. And so there is less demand for illicit market cannabis across state lines because a lot of these places are getting ready to go legal. Now, uh, let me ask a question because, I mean, I'm I'm, like I said, woefully undereducated inside of this particular industry. But when we talk about the fact that, you know, obviously goods can't be transported across state lines. You can still, as a business owner, hold licenses in multiple states, correct? Yes, you can. But you have to secure that license in the other states. And as both of you know, it's an incredibly cost prohibitive process. So most people are not securing that license in multiple states. What most brands are doing is licensing agreements. You hold that license in your home state. Uh, For example, our our friends and clients over at Coda Signature, they have that license in Colorado and they license out their product, their licensing, uh, their likeness, their packaging to other markets. And now you can buy Coda Signature products on the West Coast and in the Midwest and in the East Coast. So Mm -hmm. that's how most people do it because that cost of securing the license 
In addition to the cost of creating a manufacturing facility and a distribution network, oftentimes just does not work, especially sure. given the many financial barriers uh, in the way that these businesses are still facing, unfortunately. So when we're talking about like the people who are actually producing the product, that that makes complete sense and wasn't something that I had thought about before that, you know, because it can't cross state lines, you you would then, of course, have to have manufacturing in each place you're doing business. What about dispensaries, uh, the storefronts where people are are literally just purchasing the product? Will we see or do are we seeing like a Walmart of of cannabis coming up where you've got lots of these different storefronts under one brand that are are literally just storefronts? You do. You absolutely mm-hmm. do see that. And we're starting to see that more and more now. In cannabis speak, we call them MSOs or multi-state operators. Mm-hmm. And when you see these multi-state operators gobbling up um, collateral and properties and licenses in other states, it's pretty clear what they're trying to do. They're trying to become the first household name of weed in the country. Uh, We still haven't quite seen that yet, but we're getting close. Um, You know, but definitely a a couple notable examples. Uh, I I think the Curaleaf based out of Boston is still Mm -hmm. number one, uh, the largest cannabis business in the U.S. And you can buy weed at Curaleaf stores, I think, in 10 plus states. Um, So this is certainly starting to happen, uh, but this is also very much a nascent market and a complicated market and and a too heavily regulated market. Um, You think about it, when Colorado and Washington regulators sat down to write regulations around these first of its kind industries, um, you know, they, they oftentimes joked that they were learning how to fly the plane as they were building the plane because this had never been done before. It adds a lot of complexities to this market, uh, and they ended up over-regulating this market to all hell, which was unfortunate. Now we are starting to see the peelback of some of these regulations, uh, good work being done uh, by the Newsom administration in California, although we need to see more. We need to see more regulations being peeled back, uh, but it, it's, it's just cost prohibitive, and it doesn't make sense for most businesses unless they have tens of millions of dollars of investment and uh, working capital. And working capital doesn't come easy in this industry, especially mm-hmm. right now. And Kelly, you had written about that specific thing too, with uh, the just the cost, not just with the permits, but then with everything else associated with it. Oh, I yeah. In terms of like, I think one thing that my family member who works in the cannabis industry has always told us is like they make most of their money. I would say 50% is always going to be like flower, bud, the weed you're thinking. But you have now, you have batter, you have all these concentrates that are being made from the weed. And you, while you can se- sell it for significantly higher, some of these machines that it takes to create the concentrates can be up to $100,000 if you want the good stuff. Or it could be $100 if you're just looking for maybe some shatter. But you're also in an industry now where it's super competitive. Like, if you don't have good stuff at this store, I'm going to the next store. Like, you lost me if it's not good anyway. But yeah, in terms of like environment and products needed to create the pro- uh, to create the flour, the concentrates, the vapes, uh, that it in itself has been extremely costly. And then when you have especially in, I think, Colorado and Washington are really, and correct me if I'm wrong, Ricardo, of 
they're kind of the only uh, bigger states that have a lot of individual growers still. Mini farms, you don't have that in Massachusetts, where I've been smoking for the last three years. Actually, what's different in Massachusetts, too, is I haven't seen this in another state, but delivery service. So they have the one dispensary I went to in Massachusetts is in Fall River, but they had a truck that would deliver in Boston. And that was their dispensary, but it wasn't a storefront, but it was their Boston location. It's kind of crazy to see just the different ways that you walk into each state and experience weed differently. It's insane. And it's vastly different from place to place. Uh, you mentioned Kaylee Delivery, and mm-hmm. it's one of these exci- really exciting secondary licenses that exists because, you know, again, we're talking about arguably the most uh, regulated industry on in this country. So, of course, there's license upon license. The main three that really drive the industry is that cultivation license, the manufacture license where you're making concentrates, edibles, topicals and the retail license. But I love the secondary licenses that are now coming on board. Um, it is so great to see delivery economies get up and running. Um, you know, from my friend who runs Rolling Relief in uh, in Massachusetts uh, to my friends at Better Days Delivery in Denver, we need to see this industry catch up with other uh, amenities that we rely sure. on on a daily basis. Yeah. It's only fair. I mean, Alcohol delivery is now extremely widespread. Yeah. And we're being real. Uh, Thank you, Drizzly. Yeah, not to shame any substance because I am pro substance and we should legalize them all. But, you know, alcohol does kill more than 70,000 Americans a year. Sure. Weed has never killed anybody, according to the Centers for Disease Control. That's the federal government. Uh, you know, the, weed doesn't have a lot of friends in the federal government. So, you know, when they're <laughs> releasing data like that, it is pretty compelling. So yes, we need delivery. And another thing I'm really passionate about seeing as it rolls out more and more now is social use. You know, mm-hmm. having mm-hmm. bars, but for cannabis is necessary. This is where the market is going. Days like 420, it's good to celebrate the progress that we've seen. You know, we're unfortunately only now seeing our first consumption lounges opening up in and around Denver. Uh, But we have seen these work really well throughout the state of California, especially West Hollywood and San Francisco. And we're seeing this construct and this concept really expand, recognizing that all of these prohibitionist narratives that we've been fearful of for so long, um, you know, ultimately have their own workarounds like, oh, well, if we let them smoke weed at a bar, how are they going to get home safe? Well, we've been consuming alcohol at bars for millennia. And, Uber. You know, sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. It, there has to be an element of personal responsibility. And you can't keep criminalizing a plant simply because you're the prohibitionist who doesn't trust this and wants to keep it illegal and wants to keep putting people behind bars for ultimately a non-toxic plant. Yeah. Also on that, as a consumer, I've never blacked out from weed. I've had enough edibles where I've gone to sleep, but I've never (laughs) done stuff outside of my body and woken up being like, why am I here? Alcohol does that sometimes, but like, no weed, I go to bed and I am safe. So I, I do want to ask about um, this sort of cost of doing business in general, you know, like when I first got into marketing, 
God, close to 15 years ago now, you know, uh, the, the advent of things like social media and social media marketing were really exciting because it leveled the playing field in a big way. Even if a small business doesn't have a, a target size or Amazon size budget, they can still, you know, sort of game the system. They can use the algorithm to their advantage. They can go, they can have viral moments. They can get in front of these audiences for much less and not have to worry about the cost of something like a radio ad or a television ad or the out-of-home sorts of advertising that, that you know, most businesses prior to that had really relied on in order to generate interest in new audiences. But when it comes to marijuana, there are obviously serious limitations on that as well. And the way that it can be marketed online um, with a lot of the platforms that small businesses use. So it seems like, especially knowing that this sort of birth between the haves and the have-nots, the people with cash who can go and and become the household name of for for marijuana, that birth gets pretty wide. Can you speak to a little bit about that, you know, when it comes to cost and and marketing and and sort of that disparity, Ricardo? Yeah, you know, it, we exist in a really challenging time as cannabis marketers specifically. This industry is so tightly regulated um, that it continues to be illegal at the federal level. And we're talking about a ridiculous classification at the Schedule One st status uh, within the Controlled Substances Act that prohibits this, this substance, this new industry from finding legitimacy and being able to behave like a normal business. So, I mean, on one very foundational level, uh, cannabis businesses are still constantly losing their bank accounts because banks yeah. oftentimes don't want mm -hmm. to bank the industry. Um, yeah. and, and even when they don't lose the bank account, they still don't have access to most traditional banking services like loans and credit. It's absurd. So you're dealing with a market in its infancy at that point, which inevitably impacts your budget and your spend. Uh, and then as we get deeper into the marketing front, all of the major advertising channels are still not open to cannabis brands. Uh, we're talking Google, Facebook, all of it is shut. They've, been, they've pretty much said that until it's federally legal, that's when they will jump on board and allow these businesses to spend their dollars with them. Until then, they want nothing to do with it. You might have seen Twitter dip its toes in the water in the last few months saying, okay, we'll accept some cannabis advertising right now. So as a marketer, you approach that conundrum with your clients of how do we reach your target market when we can't use the single yeah. most important and valuable and successful targeting tools that are yeah. available to us. And I think what that ultimately does is it really places all the more importance on the other areas of marketing that are available to these folks. And that really is where we focus. I, I very yeah. much created Grasslands as an agency to fill in the gaps. We can't advertise right now. Well, we can practice public relations to secure earned media for cannabis brands. Gosh. Hell yeah, mm -hmm. all day we do that. Plus content marketing, SEO, all of that. You, you just have to fill in those gaps given the ridiculous restrictions we have to operate under because we're working mm -hmm. with this plan. And I know too, because uh, Kaylee and I had discussed a little bit about like that there are like 
social media applications, uh, the the Yelpification, for instance, of like finding uh, and and reviewing, you know, marijuana, different dispensaries, uh, plants, etc. But a lot of those dispensaries. Oh, just dispensaries. Yeah, each dispensary is going to have their own flower. So like review of flower from dispensary dispensary will be completely different. See, this is the stuff that I don't know. Uh, But, you know, this also, (laughs) to that exact point that I don't know this, these are kind of uh, applications and and sites that exist in the world of people who already know. And you Mm -hmm. said something interesting earlier, Ricardo, that the the number one segment is those who are are cannabis curious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so like how I, I mean, these these apps seem like they're filling maybe a need for a particular segment that was already going to buy your low hanging fruit. But can you talk to me uh, a little bit about you talk about PR getting earned media? Like how how are you getting in front of these cannabis curious places without of course giving away too much of your your secret sauce <laughs> yes absolutely you know I, I think one of the apps you're, you're you might be referencing is called social club it mm-hmm. was actually started by one of our clients uh he's oh. a very well-known entrepreneur and hip-hop artist named burner and he founded a brand called cookies uh, and we proudly represented cookies for coming up on four years they have a great location out in your neck of the woods kaylee and worcester uh, and a <laughs> all over the country. They're in Israel, Australia, Austria. Uh, I mean, they're 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 everywhere. Really inspiring brand. And Berner did create with his partners at Weed Maps a new social network called Social Club, which is very cool. Um, yeah, you might be preaching to the choir uh, inside some of these applications and these environments, and at the same time there is still a lot of brand elevation work to be do, done in front of that cannabis consuming public because they are hit every day with every trip to the dispensary, every drive around town with different brands in the market, including lots of new brands entering the market. So the competition is real and that is where the audience base is right now. But as it relates to the total addressable market, you know, that's when the can of curious comes into play. And that is why when we talk to new clients all too often, they're like, let, let us tell you about our number one demographic that we're trying to reach with this earned media campaign. And it's always the can of curious, because when you think about that, I, I, I did this. This is straight from my second TEDx talk. Um, you know, it is the soccer mom. They, they make most of the buying decisions for their family. She might be curious about weed, but she hasn't tried it since college and it's been a while. And so really, that is who we want to position our clients' brands in front of. As this stigma continues to wear off, it's so important that we are getting in front of that audience so that if they choose to consume cannabis, they are always consuming our clients' products. Mm-hmm. And you know, PR is a, is a really effective tool for that. It's really powerful. You know, Going back to cookies, uh, we had Burner on the cover of Forbes magazine last wow. fall. I mean, the the pinnacle of all PR placements, uh, and that was fantastic. Such a blast to, to be a part of that process, but also lifestyle publications play a huge role in this as well. Um, you know, we just had a client in Thrillist. Um, you know, we love working with 
the New York publications. Of course, New York is the hub of media in this country. Uh, and it's been great having New York State finally go online as a legal market because now a lot of our contacts who live there the journalists who are writing for BuzzFeed or uh, Us Weekly, whatever it might be, they now live in a recreational environment. Right. Legal weed seems more attainable to them now. Before it was just kind of a pipe dream and most of them chose not to cover it. But we are starting to see already cannabis popping up in food and wine and uh, various publications wow. more and more often because the normalization is real. As soon as as soon as a market goes adult use, there's so much more opportunity to explore that. And that is exactly what we do at Grasslands. I, I want to see better homes and gardens next. <laughs> Serious. It's going to be hey. Martha Stewart. Right, what? right. Absolutely. Some real simple. Uh, now, Ricardo, you, you built this business at a really pivotal forward thinking moment, you know, poised for this wider legalization. Kind of going back to Ricardo as he's building the business, did you build it with this confidence that there would be this tipping point across several more states and that it might include things like psychedelics or like, how has your business evolved? Like, did you evolve with the legislation? Did you uh, evolve uh, or uh, kind of have the foundation that was built knowing that it would? And like, how have you watched some of the 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 barriers change as like you said with some of the the regulation being stripped back yeah you know i saw so i i I very much founded grasslands with the recognition that that you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube sure Uh, you know we saw in 2012 colorado washington both voted to legalize weed and as quickly as 2014 we saw oregon we saw Mm -hmm. dc we saw more progress and then forget about it. In 2016, I think that's when we had nine state ballot initiatives out there in the world on election day, and eight of them passed. I mean, I think that's when California went wreck. I think that's when Arkansas, of all places, went medical. So at that point in 2016, I'm still at the Denver Post as the cannabis editor reporting on the implementation of regulated markets. I'm wrapping up a 24-year career but I'm watching this march forward with legalization. And yeah, it's slow, it's awkward, it's messy because it's state by state and it's this varied patchwork of of different regulations and schematics. But I could tell that this wasn't going anywhere. The toothpaste was never going back in the tube. And really it was time for me to step away from journalism and discover my inner activist and advocate because that was not a voice I could ever use as a a capital J journalist working for a daily newspaper. And so I I did resign from the Post and the Cannabis, the standalone news vertical I started there with the understanding that I wanted to focus on cannabis. I wanted to rewrite these narratives of drug policy reform. I wanted to be a part of the change. I had reported so much on the untold tragedies of prohibition and what that ended up meaning for so many people, especially people of color, because of course the war on drugs disproportionately impacted people of color. Uh, and, and so I wanted to be a part of that change. Grasslands very much is a part of that change. And, and I'm proud to say today that we work with some of the biggest brands in the industry, as well as some really great small brands in states uh, across the country and Canada. 
That's excellent. And and honestly, kind of dovetails really in nicely into uh, the, the other big need uh, that we wanted to talk about is really the ethics of businesses inside of this industry. Hi, I'm Jordan. You don't know me and that's fine. I want to recommend something to you that you'll love. It's Alan's debut poetry collection, Dead Name, and it's available for pre-order now. Dead Name is a collection of poems that shares the coming of age of one trans and queer person in the new millennia, yet it echoes across all identities to show how embracing the liberating and revelatory act of queer love and transition can not only free queer people, but all of us. Here's what poet Kieran Hodgers had to say about it. You're going to want to sit down for this. Put down whatever else you're reading and call in sick to work. Dead Name is a pulsing, vibrant, and necessary collection that heralds the vivid, visceral experience of heartbreak, joy, wonder, confusion, and hope. Technically astute, creatively playful, and emotionally honed, I am angry at how incredible these poems are, and that is the highest compliment I can offer. So if you like to be mad, sad, happy, moved, and just generally feel things while supporting a queer and trans podcaster you know and love, pre-order Dead Name from Right Bloody UK today. Find the link in our Target Snarket social channel bios on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram at Target Snarket. I, you know, talking about these changes and this evolution from, you know, the nation sort of like, I I remember being in Denver when everything got legalized. And, and like you said, you know, Washington, technically, I think just like hours before had passed it. And so it was like a sort of same day thing. But then Washington like sat back and was like, what's Colorado going to do? <laughs> and it felt like the whole nation had their eyes on us. And like, we were either going to do it well and prove that it could be done or like we were the, the, the case study in action and seeing how many states have legalized for recreational use. Now, like this all did happen really fast to your point, you know, comparatively speaking for a lot of different like legislation types. And for a lot of people, I know it's crazy to remember that there was a time not that long ago where, you know, selling weed was this very illicit, illegal activity. I remember being in Colorado and visiting, I, I live in Brooklyn now, um, but I visited New York, you know, while I was still in Denver. And I, I remember thinking like, man, I could never be in a place that didn't have legal marijuana use. I don't even, I don't even smoke. I can't because of, of health issues. But it, to me, it just felt so backward to not be in that position. And like you said, there's there's this argument to be made that that sort of criminalization of the past is responsible for a lot of downstream implications. It's not like, oh, that guy sold weed on the corner and he went to jail for a little while. Like there were mandatory minimums. There were felony sentences handed down. They were preventing people from voting and having their voice heard on issues that impacted them, preventing so many people from getting jobs across a wide variety of industries or getting housing, creating generational wealth. And I mean, it's pretty clearly impacting specific racial groups, like largely Black folks in particular. So some people paid all these penalties, and some people today are profiting off of the exact same thing. Do you feel like there is a, a tendency to sort of like whitewash the past in the industry, speaking from like your activist hat? Yeah, you know, I, I don't know that there is a tendency to whitewash the past. I think the modern cannabis industry is very aware of where it's come from. But what are they doing with that information? In my opinion, they're not doing enough. 
Um, you know, anybody operating in and around this space has to not only be aware of and educated on this complicated past that you just very deftly walked us through. Um, but then once you're aware, what do you do with that information? What action do you take? And we have seen the creation of some important organizations uh, that are doing great work at keeping that top of mind. Uh, you know, the last prisoner project was started by uh, some friends of mine, including Steve D'Angelo, and they're doing great work. Um, but we need more work. And really, that has to start at the top of companies. Um, I've found with my own small business, you know, we have 25 full timers here. Um, but we lead from the top down from that perspective of recognizing that we always need to be doing better because we work in this industry. So the uh, the harms that have been done on these communities is it, it, it cannot be measured. And we've seen social equity measures really kind of fail, unfortunately. We've we've seen some successful initiatives with expunging records and clearing records, but but like recognizing that people of color should also be benefiting from this industry now that it's legal. But that is not what's happening out there. That is a very real problem. I mentioned uh, when Kaylee and I were talking about delivery earlier, both of those delivery companies I mentioned in Boston and in Denver are social equity delivery companies uh, run by men of color and, and both really great companies and really talented entrepreneurs. But we need to see more of that, especially because the social equity attempts in Massachusetts have largely failed. Illinois took that, those lessons learned, tried to create their, no, their own construct, and that also did not work. We're seeing them really struggle to create an equitable market right now. And then New York City, now everybody is looking at New York. Uh, they have a lot of equity measures in place. I mentioned we helped open the first uh, dispensary there uh, with our clients at Housing Works Cannabis. And the beautiful thing about that is Housing Works is a decades old harm reduction nonprofit throughout the city. I mean, you probably know Housing Works wow. well, Danielle. And how cool was it that they were the first licensee to right. open up in the entire state? And now New York, can you keep that momentum going? Can you keep doing good work? And how can we convince more entrepreneurs and more CEOs and more boards of directors to really support initiatives that make sure we start to see more people of color, more women in positions of power and ownership. I think we're also seeing in New York too, Kaylee, you and I had talked about this a little bit last mm -hmm. week, what I'm calling uh, businesses behaving badly, um, you know, in New York City around this. I was reading in um, a, a local uh, media outlet, Epicenter in New York City, uh, talking, they had a whole article that they had produced about how there are actually not very many legal marijuana dispensaries inside of the city, but there are tons of them, just like there are tons of dispensaries and options and, and you can buy weed out of vans down on DeKalb. Like, I don't think a lot of people in New York and, and some of our listeners, frankly, have any idea that the places that they're buying weed are, are actually not legally licensed. And because of the equity measures that you're talking about that were in place to, to give priority licensure to people who were impacted by criminal, criminalization, whether that was family members or the people who uh, actually went to jail themselves, that those businesses that continue to do business without that licensing really kind of take away from those social equity measures. Am I, am I off base in thinking that? You're exactly right. 
That's exactly what's happening. New York is the new California. The One of the primary reasons the California regulated market is struggling so much right now is because the ubiquity of illicit market cannabis, dispensaries, brands, everything. And now that has moved to New York because, of course, once the state legalized, all these folks said, well, it's a lot easier for me to do this, a lot more low risk. So why mm -hmm. not sell weed out of the bodega? Why not open up that con secret consumption lounge? Why not, you know, open up a straight up brick and mortar with a full signage that is technically a vastly illegal enterprise? So, huh? so yeah, you're absolutely right. This is taking away from the regulated market. And we've proven that the regulated market works and has many benefits including protecting public health. So uh, these illicit market uh, you know, shops are not doing anybody any favors. Yeah, there's literally a, a, one of those exact brick and mortars just around the corner from my house. I do have to say, every time that you you mention uh, a new organization that you work with, Kaylee's face like lights up. You're like <laughs> Taylor Swift for her in this moment. And like, it's very, well, it's very fun to see. <laughs> yeah, let me, so the last prisoner project, when you said that you actually know the person that starts it, I was going to mention how the dispensary I used to go to in Massachusetts 420, it might be two years ago now, but they were handing out flyers about the Last Prisoner Project and you could donate part of uh, their 420 profits were going to go to the Last Prisoner Project. And it's just like even having your bud tender express to you, this is why we're doing this. This is for people who have been incarcerated for cannabis offenses, especially getting them out in states where it's still legal. Like Massachusetts is a pretty conservative state, so it was pretty shocking to be told this while I was buying it all. But like having someone actually explain everything to you in the process makes you think about it. Like I'm purchasing this weed. You have to think about, OK, what about that guy that I probably would have bought from in college 10 years ago who's still in jail for the dime bag he was found with? Like kind of it's yeah, I can't believe you were with the Last Prisoner Project. That's it's in my notes, too, for that. <laughs> yeah, no, they do great work. Uh, we're big fans of theirs and supporters and friends. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'll always remember when the world shut down, uh, George Floyd, uh, you know, we're living among yeah. the aftermath of his murder. Um, my friends uh, and colleagues and I just knew that we had to do something. And so we did two things. One, I started a book club where my entire team got together and read a really beautiful and important book called the New Jim Crow, uh, written by Michelle Alexander, that talks about the war on drugs being an outgrowth and ultimately a continuation of uh, slavery and institutional racism. Um, yes. And I feel it's important and essential for everybody working in and among this industry to understand that. The second thing we did is, you know, I grew up in Denver. I am indigenous. Uh, I, I benefited from a DEI-centered uh, scholarship and internship program when I was young, and that gave me a leg up and an opportunity to try my hand at journalism, which I owe everything to that internship. I really do. And so we created what we now call the Grasslands Diversity and Marketing Internship, where every year we bring on a new cohort of, of young, talented people, and we educate them, we hold their hands and we bring them into an, a marketing agency environment and really just throw them into the fire and say, maybe you find out you love this and this is what you want to do. And then you turn out like the three of us, or maybe you realize <laughs> that agencies aren't for you. So I'm proud to say we just uh, secured our third cohort of wow. diversity marketing interns. They're starting in June. 
we still have Lauren from our second cohort working with us, and we still have Andre from our first cohort two years ago uh, still working with us. We need more people doing this to make sure we're bringing in and opening up opportunities for people to learn in cannabis and psychedelics in marketing. One of the things that we're really big on on this podcast, one thing that I've been really big on, you know, working with marketers, with brands over the course of the last decade is like, give me action items, right? Like we can have the conversations, we can have the opinions and the theories on how to do things and whatnot, but what's next? And that is really, I think, sort of the fulcrum of of what we're trying to do here is like, have these conversations. It doesn't need to be a how-to guide, but also what should people be taking away from this? And I think those are really the two big, you know, remaining questions that we have for you is thinking about the future of marijuana and the future of this industry. How can sort of twofold, how can business owners uh, make greater pushes towards uh, making the industry more ethical, more responsible, more humane, but also how can consumers uh, be aware of some of these things? Kaylee, you had mentioned, you know, being being forced to actually confront the knowledge that mm-hmm. uh, that somebody, you know, went to prison for something like this just like 10 years ago. Uh, how can consumers be better about making more ethical, humane, responsible purchases inside of the industry as well? So kind of a two-folder for you. Yeah, of course. So I'll start with the business owners front since you asked that first. But I'm with you, Danielle. It's all about action. And I think action really separates the great marketers from the good marketers. Um, Marketing is nothing without action. And in my opinion, running a business is the same. Um, You know, if you're just running your mouth and not backing it up with any movement, then then why why is anybody to believe you? And so that's what I think we need to see more from entrepreneurs in this space and others. And that is saying something and then doing something. Um, It has been great to see this new movement uh, of activism and advocacy wash over social media. And that's important because, of course, you are raising awareness for important issues and organizations. But also, if you're not following that up with action, then you're not doing what you need to do. And so I really hope to inspire others to try it because it's all about making that difference within your own organization. It doesn't matter if your if your business, your startup is one person big or 500. When you create the change in your own little microcosm world, you are creating this ripple effect. And I can't tell you how many entrepreneurs my chief of staff and I have talked to about our internship. And they're like, oh, we want to know how you did that. We will tell anybody who wants to know how we did it so they can ideally do the same thing for themselves. We'll share all of our collateral, all of our strategies. You know, most people uh, who haven't done anything like that, they're not familiar with Handshake and all of the various technology platforms that that uh, folks are using uh, for looking for internships these days. So I want to be that change that I wish to see in the world. And I recognize it starts with one small ripple and that comes bigger. So hopefully some folks who are listening to this today hear that and choose to make it a a, a pivot in their own direction. It's never too late. It's never too small. Do what you can to start being more inclusive in your business and in your business practices. But for consumers, that's a big one too. And I'd start with this very basic uh, position. Um, You know, whatever market you live in, uh, Colorado, Massachusetts, uh, go to the Google, right? And say, (laughs) 
Social Equity Brands Massachusetts and see what comes back to you because you will see that these delivery operators, these edibles manufacturers, these concentrates companies are created uh, from social equity companies or from entrepreneurs who are coming from communities that were disproportionately impacted by this terrible, destructive, devastating war on drugs. You know, some programs are getting elevated. Like I, I, I mentioned, California is really, it's the most mature market we have, and it's so normalized. And I want to shout out to our, our friends and partners, Ease there. Uh, Ease, the largest cannabis delivery company in the, in the world. And they do fantastic work, not only with their people of color-centered accelerator program called Momentum, um, but also uh, they have a social equity menu. So when you're on your phone, you're on your computer ordering those uh, products to be delivered to your to your house or to your workplace, you can specifically shop from the social equity menu, which is really thrilling. Um, and, and we're starting to see that at more and more retailers in some of the emerging markets. Uh, one of my favorite Bay Area dispensaries is Urbana. I'm going to be heading out there for Hall of Flowers in two weeks. And I will definitely swing by there. Uh, they also have a social equity menu where it makes it very clear. And I intentionally buy from that because I want to be that consumer. Sometimes you do have to do a little bit of the work yourself. Um, but you know, even if you forget to Google, ask the bud tender, ask around. Because of course, the more we're communicating to these retailers that this is important to us. I am your customer and this is what I want to buy. And if you don't stock it, I'll go elsewhere. You know, the more we communicate that to them, the more they can be aware that this is a profitable profitable model, that they should be stocking these products made by right. um, social equity entrepreneurs. And this is good business. Excellent. Well, I know that we've only got a, a few more minutes remaining with you, Ricardo. Is there anything else that you'd like to to drop for our listeners? Just uh, you know, thinking about the future of the industry, or or any other kind of parting words that you feel like would be important to impart upon us. Yeah, yeah, of course, well, Danielle. I know that, of course, we're talking about marketing. We're talking about just the world around us, but you know, cannabis is very much a space that is in need of talented and passionate marketers, especially those who are passionate about the plant, about uh, social justice, and about righting so many of the wrongs of, of the past and of the war on drugs. And so for the marketers listening, um, I would highly recommend that people dip their toes in the water and, and take on pro bono work in this industry with nonprofits and organizations. Uh, we're, we just kickstarted a brand new pro bono conversation with a great nonprofit doing great work today. Um, you know, so, so for those marketers, I think it's really important because um, the more you dip your toe in the water now, the more you're going to be able to benefit on the backside after sure. we reach federal legalization, once we can start boosting posts and buying ads on Google. Um, <laughs> And, and, and it is also a very unique marketing challenge because every day we're coming to work recognizing that we don't have the tools that other marketers have. And it really forces an environment of kind of bold, visionary creativity, which is a total blast, even though it has its challenges. Ricardo, thank you so much for your time here today. It has been wonderful. Oh, it was so great to get to know both of you better. 
Listeners, be sure to follow Ricardo and his company, Grasslands Online, to see what they're up to next, uh, especially as we're following this sort of uh, legislative track or hopefully countdown to federal legalization. You can find Grasslands Online at their website, mygrasslands.com. You can also find them on LinkedIn and Facebook at backslash Grasslands Agency, on Twitter at at Grasslands AF, like Frank and on Instagram at at Grasslands Agency. So, Kaylee, uh, why don't we sort of continue the conversation? I know that uh, Ricardo, of course, had to had to bounce a little early. It is it is a holiday, as you had the mentioned. High holy day, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> that is I, a high, oh, <laughs> the high holy day. Wow. Is that the name of the episode? It might be. (laughs) I think it might be. I don't know. We'll see. Um, But yeah, I know that uh, that that, of course, he had other other things to tend to. Was that a thing? Could I say that? Is that a well, I don't know. I Are you making, trying to make a I joke? I was thinking no. <laughs> the other things to bud tend to. No. There you go. There that we go. Better. I got it. I got it. I'm getting better. Uh, and I know, like I said, you wrote about this uh, just for our newsletter today. So let's go ahead and continue the conversation. I was really interested in the sort of like mom and pop like struggle of things mm-hmm. that we just oh, like yeah. we didn't have a ton of time to spend on it. I can, yeah. So I'll, let me tell you about the mom and pop shops, right? So the documentary I was thinking of on Hulu is called Sasquatch, if anyone wants to watch it. Uh, but it's about people in Humboldt County, California, which is where a lot, it's like where the first hippie commune is. It's kind of the wild west of California. It's just, it's in the north, but because of the mountainous range, you have people that are able to grow really good weed outside. So Hmm. since like the seventies, you've had hippies who flew out seeds from Afghanistan, Hmm. start essentially the United States weed industry, like just weed scene in the U S are these hippies that started out in Humboldt County. And I say hippies, they say hippies. So it is not (laughs) any sort of derogatory term. Uh, But what's kind of crazy is when you're watching this documentary, you have a lot of either families that are still growing, like some people, this is a generational farm. You have some people who just came out of prison. Uh, One of the guys actually just got out of prison And so he wanted to go legit and brought bought property out there because the landscape is so good. The soil is so good. And because of the pricing for everything, I mean, one thing we didn't talk about with the pricing is you don't even you don't not only have an application fee to start, but then you have to pay annual fees on those licenses. So if your taxes kind of like. Ex- like exorbitant kind of a thing exorbitant like, and then you have exorbitant exorbitant <laughs> <laughs> also exorbitant though i mean like <laughs> and you even have a lot of shops cuz as ricardo had said you have a lot of banks that won't take the money from dispensaries so right. you have a lot of cash businesses and if you are in an area that's not safe and they know that there is cash in that business you mm. could lose everything very quickly. I know my family member that owns a dispensary. One of the dispensaries they own is in Portland and they've literally had people 
in Portland, Oregon, try to put a rope around there, <laughs> big old bank type safe, put a rope around it and try to drive away with it. Like, wow. so if you don't have the funds to either be able to keep up with a bank, know which banks are going to be good for your dispensaries and you're keeping all this cash either wherever sure. you can, you can lose it real fast. Sure, sure. Well, and and it was interesting to hear him talk about, you know, there's obviously going to be people who, uh, companies that are going to try to be the the household name. And I mean, like, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just that you do have these these haves and have nots, right? Mm-hmm. Like the people who are the mom and pop business who don't have that sort of like liquid funding to be able to to you know secure multi state licenses and uh, or m- licenses in multiple states rather, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know create dispensaries in lots of other areas, and and eventually if you've got a budget like the big guys then you can be on billboards. You can, you know, uh, afford um, uh, a lot of like very intense and interdependent marketing strategies. Whereas smaller shops, I mean, I've got a friend whose family owns a dispensary in uh, Durango Mm -hmm. and like, they, you know, they post on Instagram what they can, but then they're getting shadow banned and like, where, like, what are they supposed to do if like, how do they profit really? Mm-hmm. Because if your money is all going back to licenses and taxes and this, that, and the other thing, and you've got to pay a staff and you're trying to market, like it does seem like it's a constant slog for a smaller business. And like, will we eventually see too many of those casualties before yeah. everything is legal? And that's what's kind of interesting is like in, I wish Ricardo was here, but like, in my opinion, I feel like the mom and pop shops are the ones that we want to prevail because they're the ones that are either trying to go legit. It's like they they might be the prisoners that we're talking about or people with it in their past where they're like, we can do this. We just want to go legit with it, but it's cheaper to just do it illegally. And mind you, however it costs in a dispensary, you could a dealer can make whatever price they want still. So like here in Florida right now, where it's only medicinal, like if you are looking for recreational or you don't have a medical card, like you're gonna be at the whim of your drug dealers still. And it's might not be whatever the standard for the stock markets of weed is going to be. Yeah. So like, tell me about, tell me about these prices because I mean, like, (laughs) I don't know, I own a business and granted, like, I know that I got low overhead and everything because I don't have a storefront and, you know, don't have to buy product or anything, but like some of the prices that you were, you were talking about earlier, like made my head spin a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. Cause so again, it's like state per state. I know in the state of Illinois, you pay a one-time fee of a hundred thousand dollars to get your permit, but (laughs) (laughs) Hey, but in we'll start with Colorado, our all little home right now, the prices for a new application fee is going to be four thousand. And if you want to convert your facility uh, from medical into adult, it would be seventeen fifty. Then dependent on how many plants you have, those annual licensing renewal fees can go anywhere from eleven hundred to fifty three hundred dependent on basically how good you're doing. 
because if you have, I mean, up to 5,300, that's for plants that are 10,000 to 13,800 plants. Those are going to be your bigger guys. The, oh, what was that dispensary that almost bought Bronco Stadium? Oh, I remember that. Something alternative. Wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. Something alternatives. You're right. We're so good at, we're so good at half remembering things on this podcast. <laughs> I, I hate to say it though, Daniel, it's been almost five years since we've been that's, that's true. The weed company uh, buying Invesco. I'm going to check. No, I no Invesco field. Is it still at? No, it's sports authority. Native field, roots. Right Native roots. There it is. Native field. (laughs) Native roots. Yes, that's right. Yeah, multi million dollars. But the NFL is the ones who said no because, again, federally, it's a no no. Sure, sure. But something that's also interesting in terms of like price points is we talked about delivery systems within Massachusetts. So for that, you have different fees for your cultivators, your manufacturers, micro businesses. So your delivery guys versus in Massachusetts, we also there are also craft co-ops. So you can join a marijuana co-op. And if you have like I think it was 50 to a thousand growers that all wanted to bring their plants together and kind of create their own little grow house. There is your own licensing fee for that. So you have like almost $5,000 you at the lowest too, because this is only Colorado, California, different animal. It's different pricing for however size your land is um, for what products you're doing for what the purpose of your, like, if you're going to do, manufacturing and creating hash and oil versus just growing your plants. Everything's going to cost you different and you have to pay it every year. Every year. Yeah. Hot damn. Do they, so our initial license, license fees versus renewals, are those a different price? Your first ones are going to be more expensive. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's, that's pretty typical. So, wow. There is so much I learned today. I, I think that uh, that one thing that's really interesting to me uh, just about this scene, and I remember when I met Ricardo back in 2019 at the Digital Summit in Denver, that was, I mean, you and I knew each other. I was looking at rebranding yeah. the business to Broad Digital, uh, and we were talking about what would it look like to specialize in uh, sort of like adult marketplaces, yeah. things like substances, things like sex work, you know, and, and what does that look like? And I don't think we ever really, we, we never really hashed out a strategy for it. I think, you know, some of the closest that we've done is, is talking about harm reduction uh, within sex itself in the queer community, but I, which is <laughs> its own uh, animal to try and work around with like social media <laughs> and advertising and whatnot. But I remember when I met Ricardo, I was like, oh, so like this is possible. And it's so interesting how he has so creatively sort of like worked around that and positioned himself so well to be able to to take that down the road uh, when, you know, federal legalization eventually happens, which I, I agree with the both of you. I mean, it feels really inevitable. Um, it was so fascinating to learn though about like even 
even though you can still market like that, that everything is so different across all these different localities, right? Oh, yeah. The limitations. You have have some states where you can, I mean, if you go to Michigan, every other billboard is going to be for a different dispensary because there you can do actual advertising. Connecticut, if you are a Massachusetts uh, dispensary, you can put your billboards all along the Massachusetts border. You cannot have anything in Connecticut, even though there is medical marijuana legal there. Like it's, it's so funny how each state is so, so different. Even in this one is actually insane. When my parents were still living in Las Vegas, they just went legal. And we went to one of the dispensaries, super bougie. I've never been to such a fancy dispensary, but the mayor was only allowing for three locations in the entire County of Clark. So like, wow, they were not allowing for any new places, only three in the County where Las Vegas was. Wow. That's, you know, and I I know that alcohol has this sort of marketing difficulty as well. Obviously not to the extent that that marijuana has, you know, alcohol can at least still be on social media platforms and whatnot. But it's really hard because like alcohol is not a direct to consumer thing, right? So spirits companies, you know, beer companies, they are, you could argue that almost Every marketing campaign is a top of funnel marketing campaign. Yes. It is all awareness based because you can't properly connect the dots back to actual sales. Exactly. Um, yeah. I remember having to try to advertise for guns. Uh, and <laughs> oh like the whole thing was, and I think, I believe it's the same rule for alcohol Weed, you cannot, like nothing on the landing page of whatever ad you're going to can say weed, marijuana, anything. But at least for alcohol and guns, the homepage just, you can't purchase what on whatever page you land on. So if you click an ad and then it takes you to the homepage of Drizzly or like all of the bullet options available, yep. that's fine. But you cannot go and be able to click add to cart from whatever page you land on. Right, right. Wow. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, I'm sure that you can connect dots in some way, like if you run a major ad campaign around like, I don't know, like this. Oh, we're not allowed around the big game in the NFL, Uh, because I don't know if we're allowed to name it. Uh, There's for those of you not in marketing listening at home or for those of you who don't know, uh, you're not really allowed to use the name of the big game in NF- the NFL that happens every February. Okay, uh, but do you remember in 20, it would have been February 2013 when it was Washington versus Colorado and everyone was like, truly the Super Bowl. Like quotes everywhere, by the way. Right, right. Just lots of, lots of quotation lots marks. Of quotes. So just so you know, Kaylee had quotation marks around that. <laughs> it is the big game. So if you ran some kind of a, an alcohol campaign around the big game, technically, I suppose you could say you could you could draw some kind of tenuous line, right? But but it's very much a chicken and egg situation. You don't know if you're did your advertising beget the sales or did the the sales happen beforehand because of the big game and <laughs> you just happen to know your market really well. I say all of this to say that like 
the marketing of substances in general is something that is so fraught. And it was interesting to hear Ricardo say like that we need more talented marketers in this space. I kept thinking like, why is Kaylee working for me? Like, why isn't Kaylee (laughs) working in marijuana marketing? Why aren't you? I could not find a place. (laughs) I didn't meet Ricardo until today. (laughs) (laughs) Kayla's brushing up her resume after this podcast. I'm going to get a fucking meeting on my calendar in two weeks. Like The whole concept of PR being the forefront, I think, Mm. is so ingenious. Because at the end of the day, that's kind of what organic, like, the best advertising I have seen for marijuana dispensaries is I think I've talked to you about this. There's a YouTuber whose name is Jolly Ollie. He Mm. either co-owns or is just a bud tender at a dispensary. And his whole spiel is he takes a huge thing of wax. Like for people who smoke weed, you will freak out because usually wax, you take a little itty bitty and he'll be like, I'm smoking this entire sheet. That's all wax. In one like, hit. No, but he like wax. He just wrecks himself. That's what he does for two minutes. He's just coughing insanely. But everyone's like, wow, he got so high off of that. So at the bottom, he'll be like, this is what I smoked. And the dispensary sees sales from those videos. Wow, sure, sure, so, sure. Like, and th- at the end of the day, that's PR. Like it's brand awareness. It's just getting your name out there with good stuff. Shit, that, I mean, that's a, that's a hell of a tactic too. Like thinking about Ricardo and the fact that he came from journalism, right? Mm -hmm. So like he knows the world of journalism to figure out like, how can we get our clients featured in these places as, you know, like, because in my opinion, what he's doing is not just a fast follow of like what like states are doing. Like he's, he's really on the forefront of like helping make this mainstream, helping streamline this entire topic that, that, you know, it's not just like, oh, well now that marijuana is okay in whatever state, like we can pursue uh, PR opportunities in these places. Like he's actually like starting the conversations. Yeah. That's like, that's crazy, right? Like being able to start that conversation there and also get more and more business people interested in it because, you know, capitalism tends to drive along legislation pretty effectively. But what you're saying here is fascinating because like, yeah, that's, that's a hell of a strategy to find micro influencers in your area. And YouTube, uh, as long as you say it's for content 18 and over, like, it's not like Jolly Ollie's trying to get kids to watch his shit. So he's right. not going to get demonetized or anything. Right. Wow. That's, that's wild. And I wonder, are you able to, I guess, like, I don't know the, the legality of it, but like being able, why wouldn't you be able to pay influencers? I mean, to advertise for the product that you sell inside of your dispensary, right? I don't know why you could assume that that's legal. I don't know why you couldn't. Yeah. I don't know. All right. (laughs) Well, that was, uh, it was a super interesting conversation. I'm very excited uh, about the the fast turnaround on this one. Uh, I'm being able to, to listen back. Kaylee, thank you so much for your expertise in this situation, because if it had just been me, we would have been in trouble. (laughs) 
uh i'm just i'm just over here calling it a weed the <laughs> weed the mary jane uh all over the place yeah super good you're like wax i'm like that's i know i started going batter butter and then i was like I batter i was like mm-hmm. <laughs> these are words they're so interesting <laughs> Uh, cool. Well, thank you all so much for tuning in to another week of Target Snarket. We are grateful to Ricardo for being here with us today. Grateful to Kaylee for all of her expertise as well. And to our listeners and YouTube viewers, of course, for tuning in to another episode. Tune in every Tuesday for new episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. So light them up. Okay, bye! <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to Target Snarket, a weekly podcast brought to you by Broad Digital Consulting. Our podcast is hosted by Danielle Bilbrook, Kaylee Myers, and Alan Connolly, and produced by Margot Gill. You can always learn more about Broad Digital Consulting on our website, broad.digital. That's B-R-O-A-D dot digital. Or you can find us on social media using the handle at Target Snarket. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And if you're feeling so inclined, we'd love for you to review our pod if you like what you're hearing. 